Our passage today, if you have your Bibles, will be in 2 Kings chapter 23, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 20. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 1 to 20. Last week, Pastor Kevin Phipps took us through 2 Kings chapter 22. He introduced us to Josiah's kingship, to the discovery of the Book of the Covenants, which is probably most likely, uh, according to evidence, the Book of Deuteronomy's. Uh, and it is there that I will be picking up from 2 Kings chapter 22, now 2 Kings chapter 23, as we look to Josiah's Reformation. Josiah's Reformation. But before we jump in, let's pray. Our great God, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. We thank you, Lord, that we can rise with the Word of God and in worship of you. In this evening, we get to share in that great joy and privilege that we get to end our day in worship of our great God. Lord, we come this evening, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that we hunger and we thirst for the word of God like honey on our lips, Lord. May it be our desires and our wants more than anything. Lord, I lift that up to you. Pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would open up our eyes and open up our minds to the truth of your scriptures. Would you soften our hearts to hear what we need to hear? Lord, it is by your power and your power alone. We trust you, Lord, and may all this be of worship to you and you alone. Amen. Let's read 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 1 to 20. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem, in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places, at the cities of Judah, and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon, and the constellations, and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and beat it to dust, and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought out all the priests out of the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings, from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, uh, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun 
at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precinct. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down, broke in pieces, and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the, to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built uh, for Asheroth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high places erected to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with a high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of, God, of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, It is a tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his, so they let his bones alone. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophets who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also the high places that were, that were in the cities of Samaria which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that had been done, all had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. That is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Timothy Keller states this, that every single culture is dominated by idols, unless it's dominated by the glory and grace of God. David Clarkson, a Puritan, when he speaks about idolatry, he says that there is this outward idolatry, of course, that we're probably more used to hearing about. This bowing down to and this prostrating to something other than the triune God, something other than the God of Scripture. But he also speaks about the second category of idolatry. This category that he calls the secret and soul idolatry. What he means by that, that, that this is anything that is more valued than God, more desired than God, more sought than God, and more loved than God. In other words, anything can become an idol. Living in the Western culture, uh, this idea of idolatry at times seems like it's an Eastern sort of reality. Uh, but even more and more in the West, I'm saying this, is that if you're on TikTok at all, if you're on Instagram Reels at all, you'll see that there is this new love for the New Age sort of worship. There's this rise in that sort of idea of worship in, in terms of the New Age sort of ideas. There's, there's rise of gurus again and things like that. And there's this movement even towards that. But yet, when we look at Clarkson here, and he talks about this soul and the secret idolatry, what we see is that idolatry is very relevant for us. 
Adultery affects you and I this moment. The very good things that we have before us can be very great, can be idols that, that hold us back from the Lord. The idols that hold back worship to our great God. I just remember Piper and I remember Keller and they talk about marriage and, and serving God. And they said that it's very easy to place your spouse as that which you love the most, as the ultimate love in your life. When I think about that, I was just flabbergasted. I was like, whoa, it's a very small thing that we can think of. And, and we are to love our wives and we are to care for our wives and our spouses. And when I look at my wife, I'm like, man, she's a goat for my life. Uh, she's the one that I care about more than anything. And yet I have to be careful that this, my wife here, does not become my everything. It could be your job. It could be your work. It could be anything that surrounds you, your schools, your politics, whatever it is that you love more, that ultimate thing that you love, that can become the idol of your life. We are prone to idolatry because we are made in the image of God, meaning that we were made to be worshipers of the true God. But because of the fall, we in rebellion turn and worship the world. What that means is that everyone worships, even when they say they don't. Everyone's posture is one of worship. That is not lost in the fall. You still worship. The question becomes, just as R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone's a Theologian, it doesn't matter if you're a terrible theologian or a great theologian. Everyone's a worshiper. The question becomes, who do you worship? There is no non-worshippers that exist. And because our hearts are idols, factories must rest upon the word of God in our fight against idolatry. In that, I have three points for us today. First, is the word softens the idolatrous heart. The word demands right worship. And the word never fails. In verses 1 to 3, the first point, the word softens the idolatrous heart. After the discovery of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant, the book of the law, and after, after Josiah has heard that he wouldn't face destruction and that it wouldn't come towards him, Josiah doesn't just coast. Josiah doesn't just say, ah, oh, I'm good, I'm set, I've, I've made it, I'm not going to see this destruction that's going to come upon me. But rather, Josiah, man of God, a man of upright character, man who loves the Lord, what does he do? He gathers all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all people, both great and small. That means those of elite status, those of the commoner status, those that are rich and those that are poor, those that are children, adults, men and women, everybody is being gathered. Then he reads the book of the covenant to all the people, and then he makes a covenant before the people to God. The people ultimately follow in his steps, and they too covenant with the Lord. It is in this covenant that they're saying to God again, they're saying, we commit to you that you are our only God. They're saying to you, to God, that, that we will follow your laws, we will follow you, we will obey you, and we will no longer be people for covenant breakers. We will keep this covenant with you, O Lord. 
They would have understood that this is what they were doing. People, along with Josiah, covenant with the Lord. Something must have happened in this moment. Something must have happened after the reading of the word. After, the, after Josiah shared the word with the people, as he read it to every single person, something happened. What we see is that the word was that which gripped the hearts of these people. It was the word that would expose them to their nakedness, to their sinfulness, to their covenantal breaking. It would expose to them that they, are, they have hearts that are adulterous towards God, that they want him plus they want every other God that's around them. It would reveal to them that their morals and their ethics no longer follows God's. It would reveal to them that their hearts were idolatrous hearts. And what we see in Josiah is that the word brings both personal transformation and communal reformation. Personal transformation and communal reformation. It is by the word that these people read covenants. And it's necessary in reformation, uh, this renewing of their covenant to the Lord, because they needed to be brought back to the right God. They needed to sit back under the God who saves, under the God who is a true God. That they need to know their rightful place before Him. That they are God's children. That they are God's people. That God and His love and care for them demands obedience. But what was it in that word? What was it that leads them to there? And, and I have two things here that, that I see, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, that the word points them back to God's grace. The truth is this, is that word always points us back to God and his grace and mercy. Oftentimes when you read the historical books, there's often a recollection of what God has done for the people of God. The prophets often say, do you remember what your God did? Do you remember what your God has done for you? That he has rescued you? That he has taken you out of there? That he has fed you and cared for you? There's this recollection of what God has done for them. It's a reminder to the people of God that grace precedes obedience. That worship is our response to God's grace. And it's never the other way around. That grace precedes obedience, and worship is our response to God's grace. In Deuteronomy 5, 6, in the reciting of the Ten Commandments, right before that, there is a mention here where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The people of Josiah would have read this and would have understood God saves before God gave the law. God rescued before we could ever do anything. God saved us in the midst of this, that his grace was upon us before he gave us the law. In Deuteronomy 7, 5 to 9, again, the people would have read this and heard this. It is a reminder to the people of God that he didn't choose them because they were mighty in numbers. Ultimately, it means Israel, you guys aren't special. You guys have nothing about you that God would want. 
You are just like every average Joe out there. You're equal with everyone else. There's nothing you could do for me to set my affections upon you. But rather, what does Deuteronomy say? He says, it's because the Lord loves you. Keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. That is the reason he loves you. That is the reason you are even special. Not because of what you do, but it's because I chose to set my affection upon you. You're loved because I love. That's it. There's nothing else besides that. There's nothing else that they could do. There's nothing else that they could do to earn his love because I am a covenant-keeping God. I will love you. You guys are covenant breakers, and yet I will be the covenant keeper in the midst of you breaking the covenant. And I will welcome you back into my covenant infinite amount of times, and I will continue to love you because you are my people. I will continue to love you because you are my covenant people. Not because of anything you can do. See, it's only in seeing the beauty of our God, the beauty of the gospel message, and the beauty of grace that we begin to see that idolatry can be destroyed. Because it is in this that the gospel message not only is subversive, which we will deal with next, that it speaks against the idolatry of the heart, but also that it's fulfillment too. Because it points always to someone greater. And just that example of wife and husband and me not putting my wife on a pedestal of God, it's God herself, and to not love her more than God is that because the gospel points me to a greater relationship, to a greater marriage, to a greater one that is to come, that is here, that has been here, to a one that which is better so that my eyes and my gaze will never turn down to my wife in a relationship in which she was never meant to be my God, in which she was never meant to have the most affection, but that it will keep my eyes upon the Lord as it points to a greater fulfillment even in marriage itself. The gospel is fulfillment. The gospel sets our eyes and our gaze upon that which is greater than anything in this world because it points to someone much, much greater. And so it is in this that, again, I would say this, that, that as we deal with the idolatrous heart, it's why it's so important for us to be in the Word, is that the Word is filled and it's full of God's grace to God's people. It sets our affections upon Him. It sets our hearts upon Him, Say, oh, a Lord that would love a sinner like me. I fail Him daily, and yet He remains faithful. Yet He never leaves me. Yet He holds fast to me when I am letting go. It doesn't allow us to look to anything else. It holds us fast to that which is greater. Yet, also when we share with others, we are seeking to destroy the idols of others. We must be subversive, because the gospel is. But we must also show fulfillment. Desires of the people's hearts. We must show that there is something much better than whatever that may be. Desire. But also, you guys, the word is subversive. The word diagnoses the problem. The word shows them what they've done wrong. 
Deuteronomies would have revealed to the people that there is a law, that the Lord does demand obedience, and with that would come blessings, but that if there is disobedience, there would be curses. Deuteronomy 11. The book of Deuteronomy would have given even greater clarity to these people. That if you are my people, that if you are my people, you are to be obedient. This is what ultimately probably scared Josiah more than anything, is that as he looked at the kingdom, as he looked at the nation, he would have saw this blessing and curses in the book of Deuteronomy and said, we're covenant breakers. And in covenant breaking, God is promising wrath upon us. Why he sent out for the prophets to receive the word of the prophets, that there is punishment for this. The word diagnoses the problem. The word reveals to us the idolatries of our hearts and it strikes us and it cuts us deeply. It hits us at the core of our issues. Cuts across and reveals to us the cancer within our hearts. To reveal to us the roots within our hearts, which is idolatry. And as the people would have read and would have seen the covenant and curses theme throughout Deuteronomy, they would have been afraid as well too. They would have understood, oh, as we read the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they would have seen, we're worshiping other idols. We're worshiping other gods. We've made images. We've used our names, Lord, in vain. We are murderers. We are thieves and we covet. We have broken every law that is there. They would have understood that they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. They would have understood that we were double-minded people. The book of Deuteronomy would have struck them. And in all of that, what they would have seen, that we are covenant breakers. God is going to send his wrath upon us and we deserve his wrath. deserve his wrath. The word diagnoses the problem. The word shows where they have gone wrong in the midst of their sins. In this first part, what we need to see is this, that the word in softening the hearts of idolatrous hearts, that it points to the gospel and it cuts right at the heart. It is subversive both subverts and it fulfills. That's why the word is so important for us that it not only tells us what we've done wrong, but it points us to the one that is right. Point two, the word demands right to worship. As we have seen some of Josiah's reformers here already, they've already begun even before the discovery of the book of Deuteronomy's and that much of the reforms may have been complete already at this point. Uh, Philip Graham Ryken says this, that what it does in discovering the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant, is that it gave fresh wind and holy fire to Josiah's reformation. If you ever edited a photo or a video, what he is saying is that it's like saturation. Saturation is simply just kind of the intensity of colors in an image. If you ever edit a photo and you turn up that saturation level, you, you, you can turn that green to a crazy green as high as you want. And that's what it does here is that the book of Deuteronomy brings an intensity to the reforms that Josiah has already done and to the reforms that are still to be completed. So whether we look backwards or whether we look forward, all the reforms are done according to the word of God. 
Because truthfully, it's not like Josiah doesn't know what he's doing. It's not as though Josiah is left in the dark in the beginning of his reforms. He has an idea. He knows he's a God, a man of God. He has prophets that are faithful. He probably has certain writings of the books of the law as well, too. So he wasn't oblivious to what he was doing. He wasn't just moving according to his own rhythms, I would say. But what the discovery of the book does is it brings a richness and a fullness to the reforms that he's already done and that he is doing. And in all this, what is Josiah's reformation? It is a restoration to bring right worship of God back to the people of God. And in that, Josiah's goal is to bring reform of restoration of right worship. I think about the reformers of the Protestant Reformation and a big part of that reformation was a restoration of right worship. It wasn't to do something new. They're not being novel. They want to restore faithful and right worship. They want to restore faithful and right theology. They want to restore faithful and right preaching. It's a restoration project, not a novel product, project that they had before them. And so there's this restoration of right worship. And then, 2 Kings 23, 4, 6, and 11 to 12. Some things that we see in here is that if there is to be a restoration of right worship, the temple needed to be cleansed. That the worship place of God needed to be dealt with. Because the temple of God, the place of the worship of God, it was filled with idols. Josiah's order orders that these idols and these vessels made for Baal, made for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven were to be taken out of the temple. You see, that, that's quite an interesting thing. It's, it's as if if we were to come into church, and we were to have a Buddha statue here, we were to have a Muslim, a Muslim Quran book here, and we were to have Hindu goddesses all around this building. And as we worship God, we would also be worshiping these other gods as well too. It wouldn't make sense of why are these idols in here? Why these idols with uh, why the idols in this place of worship where the triune God is to be the only one to be worshipped? What was happening here is that it reveals to us, again, that guys, when Israel falls into idolatry, it's never an idolatry in which they forget the God of Scripture. It's always syncretism. They add gods to their faith rather than taken away. They add and think that having more would be better. Having more would give us a better chance. Same thing that's happened since Genesis. But they would say that she was a first syncretist in Scripture. But it's, again, the same thing that's happened throughout the church, throughout the history of Israel. And it's, again, the same thing that's happening here. Is that they were double-minded people. They believed they could add to their worship. And in effect, what they actually did was they defiled the place of worship. When God is not worshipped rightly, the defilement of worship, it's a reminder that the elements of our worship matter. It's a reminder that we cannot worship God and the idols of our hearts. It's a reminder that we are called to purge our double-mindedness. That we are called to purge that which holds us back. That which we want to say, well, God is the greatest God to worship. And all these other things are just kind of secondary worships. No, no, no. God is not the greatest. God is the only one that is to be worshipped. 
is the picture. There is not a pantheon of gods that we could worship at secondary levels and God as the ultimate level. There is one only that is to be worshipped. That is the God of Scripture. And in that, a place of worship needed to be restored. A place of worship needed to be fixed. A place of worship needed to be purged of all these idols. And that was Josiah's job was to return the people of God back to worship. To return the people of God back to right worship. But that restoration requires that this be a thorough restoration. Josiah's reformation was not to be an abridged version of cleansing. It was to be thorough. It was, there was not to be a spot missed. There was not to be a stain left behind. There was not to be an ounce of dirt that was to lay anywhere. This was to be a total reformation. A reformation that Israel has never seen in their lives before. A reformation and a cleansing that would go beyond anything ever. It was to be thoroughly done. See that even in Deuteronomy 7, 5. And I can, when, when it's told to him as you guys enter the land, what does he say? You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. There is this totality of no idols in the land of God. No idols is to touch God's place. And we see this thoroughness even in the removing of the idols from the, from the worship place. But they didn't just remove these idols. They burned them and they crushed them. There is a thoroughness to there. There is this reminiscence of the golden calf incident that's happening there as well too. There is this idea that it's not to be stored away. It's not to be held for another day. It's never to see the light again is what Josiah is saying. These idols are to be destroyed, to be crushed, to be burned. There is a totality to this reformation. But it's one thing to remove and destroy the objects of worship. But in his thoroughness, he also removes the ringleaders of these false worship. We see this in verses 5, 9, and 20. Showing forth that unless the leaders of these false gods were dealt with, they would always have an influence with the people. In verse 20, we see the depth of this, uh, of this thoroughness that Josiah does. What does he do? He sacrifices these priests. These priests probably were sacrificed. Not all priests were sacrificed, but in verse 20, these priests were sacrificed most likely because they were not Levitical priests, but because they were priests of the high places, priests of the idolatrous worship. These weren't priests who still worshipped God in some sort of fashion. Sacrifices them. Kills them. There's a thoroughness there what we begin to see is that there's not only a cleansing of temple that was necessary, but there was a cleansing of the land that was necessary in Josiah's time. It was more than just a worship place, but it was a place that God gave his people. It was a land that was God's people's land that he promised them. There was to be a purge that was to occur of the land itself. But we also see that if right worship is also to be completed, 
There's to be a thoroughness in terms of their morals and ethics as well too. A cleansing of that. You all have heard the phrase, you are what you eat. Israel was what they worshipped. Idols. Their ethics and morals were no longer grounded in the God who saved them and the God who gave them the law. Rather, their ethics matched that of the idols they worshipped. In two places we see this is the male cult prostitutes in verse 7. And in verse 10, the place where children were sacrificed to Molech. The heinousness that Israel fell into in the midst of idolatry was sexual immorality and also children's sacrifices. That they would go to that lane, that in the worship of these false gods, they also lost their morals and their ethics. When our eyes and our gaze are no longer set on the God of Scripture, it's not just this idea that, oh, we're just worshiping something else, but there's a very real and dark, sinister power in which we begin to adopt the ethics of that which we worship. That we become and we look more and more like that which we worship, that which we love, that which we care more about than anything else. We adopt their ethics and their ways. And for there to be a right worship restored, that there to be a restoration of right worship, ethics and morals mattered. That they had to come back and say, we were God's people. We don't worship the idols. We don't follow these false leaders. And yet also our morals and our ethics are that of God's. That we live in line with him. That we are holy as he is holy. That we have been set apart from this world and we look different from this world. If right worship is to be restored, it had to be a purge of the false morals and ethics. You know, the place we see this is the word defiled that is used over and over again in verses 8, 10, 13, and 16. The truth is that even if these objects on these high places were destroyed, the place itself was sacred. They were special, and these objects would ultimately reappear. So it was more than just the objects themselves as well, too, in these high places in these places in which they were offering and sacrificing to the gods. The place themselves were holy to these people. And so it was more than destroying the objects that were there. We see this defilement that, that Josiah had to take an extreme measure against that which was happening. We see this clearly in verses 13 to 14 when he sprinkles the bones of the men upon the places of false worship. What he ultimately was doing was reminding the Israelites, ah, dead bodies touch, you're defiled, you're unclean, you're no good. He brought it down to the soil that the very place itself was no longer holy, that the very place itself would be unclean. Ultimately, what happened was those places, those high places, those places that he defiled became Chernobyl. It was radioactive, and to step on it would be to get radioactive poison. To step on it would be to be unhealthy, to be unclean. Josiah took it to the fullest length that he could. There's a thoroughness in history. In verses 13 to 14, Josiah mentions Solomon. Josiah's going back to the beginning of the United Kingdom, back to the beginning right before there was a split of the kingdom of God between the north and the south. 
And it is in Solomon that introduces, because of the many wives he had, a place of worship for his wives. And he's going back to history. The thoroughness goes back to Solomon, back to the beginning, back to the roots of it all. And he reverses and undoes the wrong of Solomon. But there's also a thoroughness of his scope in verses 15 to 20. Josiah up to this point has undone all that his forefathers had done in leading the people of God into idolatry. But he wasn't content with just Judah. Josiah goes north and continues his reformation. Remember, the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom has been taken away. So what Josiah did at Bethel and throughout Samaria was a microcosm of his reformation everywhere. By destroying unholy idols, desecrating high places, and dispatching wicked priests, he was doing everything in his power to eliminate false worship entirely. His reforming work dealt with the pagan practices of every bad king, from Jeroboam to Manasseh, from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. It also had the effect of uniting a divided kingdom around, around the worship of the one true God. There is a spiritual reunification of the kingdom in Josiah's time. He reunites the north and the south. Far too often, we recognize idols within our own hearts. We see them and we know them. But the truth is that oftentimes we don't desire for a thorough reformation of our hearts. A thorough destruction of these idols within us. We like the idea of an abridged version of this campaign. We like the idea that we'll remove them, but let's not burn them and crush them. We like the idea that we'll crush the high places, but let's not defile it. Let me just keep it in my back pocket. Let me just hold it for a moment. The Lord's work is one of total destruction of idolatry in our lives. It's one in which, by the Spirit of God, we can put to death the sins and the idols of our hearts alone. It's one in which the Spirit enters us, fills us, and by the Word of God and by His Spirit, by His sovereign will, slowly demolishes, slowly begins His campaign as we are on this earth, destroying idol after idol after idol, until he returns, Christ returns, and the kingdom is fully consummated. And there will be no more idols here. When all the idols of our hearts will be removed and destroyed, there is a reformation that is happening in your hearts here and even now as you live in this period. This leads us to our third point as we've looked at how the word softens idolatrous hearts the word calls for restoration of worship. And I want us to just look at verses 16 to 18 also here. We see that the word of the Lord never fails. It's a very quick section I have here for us. That Josiah fulfills a prophecy that was prophesied by the man of God 300 years earlier in 1 Kings chapter 13. Dale Ralph Davis states here uh, in 2 Kings 23, 16. Our writer is saying, well, there you have it. Josiah exactly fulfilled that Bethel prophecy from 300 years ago. Yahweh's word never falls to the ground. 
it would infallibly always come true. The prophecy of 1 Kings 13 tells us that this prophet would come from the house of David and that he will come to right the wrongs. He will come with a mighty sword against all abomination. Yet this Josiah and his coming is only a foretaste of one who is to come, of another son of David, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the greater Josiah. Jesus is the greater reformer. Josiah repaired and cleansed the temple, but Jesus himself is the temple. Josiah renewed the covenant of the people of Judah, but Jesus perfectly keeps the covenant as a federal head over all of God's sheep. Josiah did not face the wrath of God, but Jesus on the cross was torn and faced the full wrath of our God. And as such, he is both the just and the justified for those who believe. And as such, he can punish our adultery and still make us his true bride. In closing, the wrong application today is to go out with baseball bats, to go out with swords, to go to mosques and temples and false worship places and beat up statues and beat up people. That's not what we're called to do. We don't live in a theocracy anymore. Christ has come. But this does not mean that we do not have a sword. We have the word of life, the spiritual sword that confronts and can stand up against any idols of the culture and of people's hearts. We have a greater sword that can destroy the root of idolatry in the hearts of men, that pierces deeper than any sword any man can make. We need to be people that are discerning, exposing, and ultimately challenging the idols of our culture, the idols of our place today with the word of God. That means we have to be aware of what's happening around us. That we can bring the word of God to bear upon the idols that our teens will face, our college students will face, that we will face in the workplace. We must be prepared. It is the word of God that softens the idolatrous hearts. It is the word of God that will return people to right worship because the word of God never fails ask. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are the greater Josiah. That you are the greater one that will return. And when you bring your kingdom to fall upon this earth, Lord, there will be a total reformation of this world. There will be a total removal of every single thing, both physically and spiritually idolatrous in this world. And Lord, we look to you and rest upon you. May we be a people that trust you. May we be a people that look to you and you alone. May our hearts 